Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity entitled Clinician's Update on Omega-3s in ASCVD Risk Reduction is provided by Medtelligence. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Welcome to today's symposium. Uh, I am really honored to have my very close friend, uh, Dr. John Nelson, with me today. We're going to take a look at an update on three omegas in atherosclerotic heart disease. Uh, and hopefully, you all will find this really cutting edge, fun to talk about, and be engaged in this. Uh, John really needs no introduction. But uh, just so you can see his actual number of, he's got so many titles, I can't put them all up there. But he has been involved in lipids for years, just like I have. And both of us are very, uh, very much into this area. So I will uh, actually show a few introductory slides and then I'm gonna turn it over to Dr. Nelson who will take it from there. Uh, I think probably most of you are interested in getting CMEs. This has certainly been accredited for that. Uh, you will get one online uh, for uh, credit for this. Uh, and again, the terms are up here on the screen. Um, and I think you can read it yourself. It's not that complicated. This is our agenda. We'll basically have a program overview. Uh, here's the actual evidence. We're going to go through clinical evidence for three omegas so that you can look at it. Uh, and then we're going to ask the question. We're all of the same and take a look. And then John's got spectacular information here on the new information that's uh, come out, and then we'll have some case presentations for you so you can uh, have a chance to look at what we think. Um, this is a slide that I put together, and I think this is uh, yesterday's case. Uh, heart disease is living in well. Diabetes is living well. This man is 45, has type 2 diabetes, uh, and if you take a look, uh, you can see since heart disease on this blue bar is number one, as far as leading number of death. And you can see the main artery right here, which you guys are all focused over here, but look over here. This is the main pump artery for the heart. That's the Widowmaker. He shut that thing off the day before he came in, but then he decides to come over and sit in the hospital overnight. And you can see remaining is a high grade block. Now look at that he is now. Now you say, oh my gosh, that's fantastic. You opened his artery. That's true. The only problem is you don't see this squeeze down here at the bottom. He's insulin resistant, but he still has this one over here. So this guy has a triglyceride of 350. He has an LDL cholesterol that he feels is fine. It's about 90 and he is taking a statin. And I'm sure John and I both will talk about this as we get into our talks. Uh, and I think probably lipid management, we're in a new era. I think most of us targeted LDL. We did a pretty good job. But I think now we're moving into the mixed ones, and it really has something that is uh, changing the way many of us practice. These are a number of the important trials. And again, John's going to talk a, lot, a whole lot about more of these as we get into it. I'll talk about some basic science after his talk, but I think we need to start with Dr. Nelson's talk first, and let's take it from there. Now, let me turn it over to John. It's absolutely wonderful to be here, and, and it's just absolutely wonderful to be here with Bob, and I hope you guys out there are going to have as much fun as we are. So this is very exciting times right now. 
we're going to talk about the clinical evidence of omega-3 fatty acids on atherosclerotic cardiovascular risk reduction. These include my disclosures, and you can see my uh, as they're listed. Now, despite the presence of atherosclerotic disease and statin with monotherapy, you can see substantial risk remains. And this emphasizes the, the non-LDL and also the non-lipid risk factors that we need to focus on. And you can see even in the Jupiter trial where we had very good LDL control, look at the still the significant residual risk. So the residual risk, as I mentioned, is not just due uh, to lipid factors, but also traditional risk factors. Now, one of our first studies to really show on statin therapy, the residual risk of triglycerides was the Prove It or TIMI-22 trial. And you can see the residual, the, the residual triglycerides predicted the residual risk despite the LDL goal at LDL goal on statin monotherapy. Notice the 41% increase in risk, even with mild hypertriglyceridemia. So despite an LDL below 70 on high dose statin, remember this was 80 of atorvastatin versus 40 of provastatin, there was still a 41% increase in risk. And when you really looked at this, the paper, what was amazing is for every 10 milligram, milligram per deciliter decrease in triglycerides, just 10 milligrams was associated with lowering risk by 1.4%. So that's pretty significant when you think about it. So normal triglyceride has been defined um, as less than 150, and this is on the guidelines for the 2011 HA and 2014 NLA guidelines. But we're going to talk more about that also. But let's take a look at the ERIC study and the Framingham offspring study. The fasting triglycerides is strongly related to cardiovascular risk. But look at it this closely. Look how that curve goes skyrocketing up uh, from 100 to 200. So as you can see, the risk really starts well below 150 milligrams per deciliter. So this is, this is another thing we have to be especially uh, aware of and how important it is when we see TRIGS in the high risk and very high risk patients, we're treating them. So uh, why are triglyceride rich lipoproteins in the remnants? important because they are causally related to atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. Under Mendelian randomization, all these factors, APOA5, APOC3, angiopoint 3, and 4, and lipoprotein lipase are all causally supportive of increased cardiovascular risk. And what was very important discovered several years ago under Mendelian randomization, the triglyceride-rich lipoproteins, like LDL cholesterol, are associated with atherosclerosis, but the triglyceride-rich lipoproteins, the remnant lipoproteins, they are associated with inflammation, whereas LDL cholesterol wasn't. Furthermore, remnant lipoproteins accumulate in the animal macrophage, in the foam cells, 
more readily than LDL cholesterol. So you remember LDL has to be oxidized or modified. Remnant lipoproteins, they don't. So when you see high triglycerides, start thinking about all them little puppies that are, that are, are, are causing atherosclerosis. So current guidelines regarding uh, available statin adjuncts, I wanna mention this, uh, are fibrates nicotinic acid, but they have not been shown to improve atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease outcomes. The studies have been negative, both the cord and field for phenofibrate and aim high and HPS2 thrive have been negative studies. And on top of that, the FDA took this off the indication for in combination with the statin because of the lack of cardiovascular risk reduction and also potential risk. So now let's, now let's look at, at omega-3 data and cardiovascular outcomes. The first 10 studies that you see in the clear boxes represent the ONG meta-analysis, which showed no reduction in cardiovascular event rate reduction. However, the GISI heart failure and GISI prevention and the JELUS were positive. The more recent cardiovascular outcome trials uh, with omega-3 in primary prevention were also negative. These include the 5,871 patients, men greater than 50, women greater than 55 and vital, and the 15,480 patients age 40 or more with diabetes in ASCEN. Both those primary prevention studies were negative. However, reduce it what with 8,179 patients was the first cardiovascular outcome trial to look at the effects of high-dose purified icosapenenol on statin therapy in men and women 45 years of age and older with either cardiovascular disease and or diabetes in one risk factor with TRIGS 150 or more with an LDL greater than 40 or and less than 100. And when looking at these contemporary cardiovascular outcome trials, only reduce it mandated statin therapy. And we're gonna, I'm gonna show you this, how well they were treated, that 93% uh, were on moderate or, or high-dose statin. Now, JELUS was the first cardiovascular outcome trial uh, to utilize pure EPA in the form of ethyl, 1.8 grams per day. And this was added to statin-treated patients and the only criteria, it was a very simple study. This was men 45 to 75 years of age and women postmenopausal up to age 75. The only other criteria was a total cholesterol of greater than 251 milligrams per deciliter. There was no triglyceride entrance criteria for jealous. That's important to know. The baseline trigs, by the way, were 151. And there was a 5% reduction in the triglyceride that was significant compared to control. Now, there was no the placebo arm. This is, this is uh, in, in, these, in these studies in Japan, placebo is not typically utilized. The baseline EPA plasma level was 97, and this increased to, to 169. So you can see in Japan with the higher oily fish consumption, we're dealing with EPA levels that are magnitude higher that we see in, in the United States. 
we have those of you that measure EP levels, you'll be seeing EPA levels of less than 15.6, typically, which is the lowest gas chromatography can even measure. So, it, and, and we'll talk about this too, that's what's been published in the Reduce trial. But basically, we're talking around 20 in the United States. So, you get an idea of how low our EPA level is here. Um, you can see the event rate reduction was 19%. You can see the curve split and they continue to split. And over on the right graph, take a look at the subgroup of HDL uh, that was low, less than 40 and trigs over 150, 53% reduction uh, in that group of patients. So now let's look at the exciting landmark reduce it trial. So you can see, uh, the, the significant 25% reduction and 26% reduction in the primary endpoint, which includes your typical five endpoints, and the key secondary, which is the we call the hard cardiovascular endpoint, CV death, amine stroke, because you can't argue if you're dead or if you've had a heart attack or if you've had a stroke. And, you, and also, Take a look at the NNTs. This is really important too. The NNT for the primary endpoint was 21. Look at the NNT for the secondary endpoint was 28. And again, the key inclusion criteria include cardiovascular disease or tr with TRIGS over 150. And also, uh, as we mentioned, uh, type two or one diabetes with more than one uh, risk factor. And most of the patients that we see all day long have these risk factors. So as I mentioned earlier, the, the prescription IPE achieved the primary or secondary uh, endpoints and reduce it independent of baseline triglyceride levels. And the cardiovascular event rate reduction was not affected by whether the trig levels after one year randomization were greater than equal to 150. So this is very important to also know that. So when, if for every 1,000 patients treated with icosapenethyl for five years, there was 12 cardiovascular deaths reduced, 42 non-fatal MIs reduced, 14 fatal or non-fatal strokes, and look at this, 76 coronary revascularizations reduced, 16 hospitalizations for unstable angina. So basically 159 composite endpoints reduced for every five, five years for every thousand patients treated. Now, we know the combination of TRIGS over 150 with either cardiovascular disease or type two diabetes and at least one risk factor involves a lot of people in the United States. So we're talking about uh, it's been looked at 8.5 million people estimated have this problem. And so when you, when you look at the NHANES data and you say, well, how many of these folks could we anticipate reduction in event rates? Take a look at the preventable events, that third bar under the primary composite outcomes, 71,391 Americans. This is, this is amazing. But look at the hard events, okay, under preventable events, okay? Uh, it's, 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 it's total events, the initials 29,798, and the subsequent of that total is 41,593 events. So this is, 
this is impressive data. Under the secondary composite, the heart events, look at the initial events, 22,349 heart events. So we see these patients all day in our clinics. So how important are the KISO, the EPA serum levels? As we know, EPA is a uh, icosapenazole, is a uh, prodrug, and so it's acted upon by a lyase, and the um, ethyl group is removed. Then it's uh, repackaged and re-esterified uh, into chylomicrons, and the ethyl group is re-added. So jealous provided the first data in cardiovascular outcome trials with EPA that the on-treatment EPA uh, plasma level was related to event rates. Take a look at the graph on, on the right. Notice if you compare EPA blood levels less than 150 to greater than 150, 18% reduction, p-value 0.035. But notice when you get less than 100 compared to more than 100, it's no longer significant. And you can see the hazard ratio even improves after you go up to 200 versus less than 200 versus greater than 200. So this was the first signal in a cardiovascular outcome trial that measuring this makes that gave you information. Now let's look at the reduce it trial. Let's look at the contemporary trial done on moderate to high dose statin on high risk patients or type two diabetes or type one diabetes with elevated tricks. Now look at this data. So now you can see, as we saw in Jealous, we are again seeing the crucial relationship between higher levels of EPA and reduced cardiovascular event rates and reduce it. The relative risk reduction achieved by acosapen ethyl in reduce it was per overwhelmingly predominantly associated with the serum EPA levels with only minimal contributions by LDL, by triglycerides, by non-HDL, by ApoB, by HSCRP, and even remnant lipoprotein cholesterol. So this is an, a review of, of the effects of EPA on plaque progression. EPA manifests an extensive array of non-lipid pleiotrophic effects. Look at the anti-inflammatory effects, the anti-oxidative effects, uh, the, the effects on plaque, which we're going to talk about. And not even on this table is so important is the effects on the resolvents. These cause resolution of inflammation. And the first resolvent discovered by Dr. Sirhan was resolvent E1, which is directly derived a metabolite of of, of EPA. So as I, as I mentioned, EPA manifests extensive array of non-lipid effects. It also has an extensive array of, of, of a diverse array of imaging modalities uh, by, by reducing promotion of, of regression and reducing progression of plaque, including studies with just standard cardiac catheterization, optical coherence tomography, intravascular ultrasound, cardiac CT. We have all sorts of exciting data to look at, and I'm going to show you some of this data. So first of all, let's just look at a basic heart cath data. 
as you saw Dr. Chilton just provided a nice angiogram he just did. So this is an example when you look at the EPA ratio, the, the EPA divided by the arachidonic acid. So, so look at the stenosis decrease when EPA, this was 1.8 grams are added to statin therapy with an LDL of 81.5 versus the, versus the diameter uh, with statin alone. You can see there was a significant uh, reduction in the, in, the, in the diameter stenosis with uh, the addition of, of, of EPA. And this study was a six month study. So now let's look at uh, intravascular ultrasound. This is another exciting uh, modality. And this study uses int integrated backscatter ultrasound. And basically all it is is a very miniature ultrasound uh, uh, a transducer that's put at the tip of catheter. And basically what this allows you to do is show the plaque composition. And this is the CHERRY trial and the CHERRY randomized patients as, uh, as you can see, these patients are undergoing cardiac catheterization and PCI to, to patavastatin uh, with EPA, one, again, 1.8 grams versus patavastatin alone uh, and this for monotherapy. Um, and you can see, compared to statin alone, EPA plus statin showed a greater uh, reduction in total atheroma volume. And furthermore, take a look at this. This is the, the plaque progression, uh, um, the plaque regression significantly increased with EPA uh, versus statin versus statin alone. And you're gonna see this continued theme as we go on. So furthermore, we can look with other modalities, including optical coherence tomography. So all those folks out there that love physics, I think this is really exciting technology because this is an optical method using emission and reflection near infrared uh, uh, light. But listen to this, it produces a tenfold uh, 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 greater resolution for ultrasound, and you can now see down to four to 20 microns. Yes, I said microns. Remember, red blood cells, eight, four to 20 microns. You can actually image macrophages and foam cells. This is, this is pretty impressive stuff. So this is ideal for measuring the, the cap of our plaque, the fibrous cap. And we define a thin fibrous cap of less than 65 microns. So you can see this study can easily measure the fibrous cap. So this is an important study that was done. And you can, and again, 1.8 grams of EPA added to uh, uh, resuvastatin versus resuvastatin alone, looking at nine months. And 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 you can see the 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 um, the reduction. Uh, first, uh, the increase in the cap thickness, and now look at the decrease in the lipid arc with EPA, and then bingo, look at the lipid length decrease after EPA. All very statistically significant findings, and this study has been, been replicated multiple times. So now let's talk about computed tomography and geography, which a lot of us use. And this again is a non-invasive method to determine plaque composition. 
the severity of vessel stenosis, plaque area extended remodeling, and total plaque burden. So while reduce it was going on, we decided to conduct an independent investigator-sponsored trial to look at the mechanistic aspects supporting the biologic plausibility of icosapenethyl EPA as an anti-atherosclerotic agent. So we decided to use coronary CTA to measure the effects on coronary plaque in patients on statin therapy, TRIGS elevated 135 to 199 with an LDL of greater than 40, less than 115. And we chose low attenuation plaque. Okay, that's the gooey soft plaque that's got all the lipids in it um, uh, as the primary endpoint, as this is considered one of the most vulnerable plaques when you're looking at CTA. And it also is one of the strongest predictors of MI, the low attenuation plaque. So you can see in, the, in our study uh, at 18 months, look at the bar on the left. Take a look at that blue bar. That is the primary endpoint, low attenuation plaque at eight. Now we're talking about 18 months. This isn't 18 years. This is 18 months reduced 17%. So we're talking about 1% per month. Um, note there was also significant reductions in fibro fatty, fibrous plaque, total non-calcified, and total plaque. By the way, take a look at calcified plaque. It almost hit statistical significance at 0 0.0531. I want to point out, go back to that first bar. Um, look at the low attenuation plaque increase in the placebo arm of 109%. Okay, this is not unexpected as 71% of the patients in the icosapent ethyl arm and 67.6% in the placebo arm uh, had diabetes. And we know when you're looking um, uh, uh, at these patients, they have a significant increase in plaque. So we know when you're looking at HDL cholesterol, why are the why are these pay, why is this possibly benefiting plaque? How's it doing it? Well, we know when looking at HDL. It's not just the cholesterol content, it's the functionality. We all know that, okay? Um, so we're concerned about what does EPA do? It must do something to the HDL to suck this plaque out. And so what might contribute to this plaque regression that we see in all these studies, including evaporate? Well, Dr. Tanaka did a wonderful study to answer this question. So we took 28 patients with dyslipidemia, they got 1.8 grams of EPA a month, and he assessed the HDL functions with an, with an in vitro cell-based assay. Now, remember, this HDL came from the patients. This came from their blood. So now, now you can now see the data. Notice there was no change in the LDL, no change in the HDL, really no change in the triglycerides. Look at that EPA blood level, right? Fasten your seatbelts. There's, and, but notice their value is much higher than you would see in the United States. But look at how much it's still increased with 1.8 grams. That's why we can get similar increases in the United States with four grams. We're starting out so much lower. Uh, look at the EPA ratio. Look how it also increased. And take a look at this far bottom right graph. This was a landmark discovery the EPA ratio in the HDL 
in that HDL mimicked exactly what you saw in the serum. Okay, so bingo. Now, look at the cholesterol efflux now. So there is the pre-APA and post-EPA. And so now you can see the marked increase in the cholesterol efflux. Now, he went one step further. He said, what about the endothelial cells? What's the EPA do? We know it lowers VCAM, but he wanted to show what lowered. And notice on the far right graph that the amount of VCAM expression is directly reduced by the amount of EPA AA in the HDL. So we've got the HDL interaction going on, obviously, with the endothelial cells. So let's talk now about what does the DHA EPA coronary CTA data. You've pretty much seen the EPA alone. What about when you add them both together? So this is Dr. Naga, Nagahara's data, and this looked at a study where we looked at patients that got CTA looking at plaque progression on EPA by itself, EPA and DHA in control. And you can see the plaque progression basically was pretty much halted with EPA, increased with EPA and DHA. And again, take a look at that ratio on the right. EPA, that EPA ratio significantly increased to 1.03. Now, here's another study was done this time with, with over three grams total of EPA and DHA, 285 subjects with stable coronary heart disease on statins, randomized, and again, no significant changes. And, and this study was 30 months. This isn't 18 months like we did in evaporate. This was 30 months, okay? The fatty plat, fibrous fat, non-calcified, calcified, did not reach their primary endpoint. Now, we've also heard about two recent cardiovascular outcome trials with EPA and DHA that have both failed, and this includes strength. And you can see this study was randomized over 13,000 patients, and it was stopped because it was, it was felt it would not reach its endpoint, and the mean time was 42 months. And you can see whether they got the omega-3 of DHA and EPA versus the placebo, there was no difference um, whatsoever. There's been a lot of controversy, as you know, about strength and reduce it. Uh, strength had triglyceride level of 180 to 499, reduce it, 150 to 499, reduce it, use mineral oil as a placebo. And this has been endorsed, endorsed by the FDA. There's been some concern the mineral oil may have a negative effect, uh, by reducing statin absorption. Mineral oil has been used for years as, as an, a laxative. So 80, this has been looked at, a nice study just published last year, review of 80 studies shows that mineral oil did not have a significant absorption effect on blood lipids, inflammatory factors, blood, blood pressure. Mineral oils, I said, has been extensively evaluated by the FDA, Health Canada, European Medicines Agency, and I want to point out, we did a nice uh, uh, paper where what we did was we just looked at the placebo progression rates of plaque. So if mineral oils, you know, if there is an effect, so this is the garlic study looking at placebo now. This is just the placebo arm. And you can see the, and we look at the placebo arm of evaporate you just saw. So this is placebo. So one's got mineral oil as a placebo. Uh, uh, another one has a non-mineral oil cellulose base. And you can see on the placebo arm, it's almost identical. They're, the p-value is 0.58, no significant changes. So 
Baseline and achieved EPA levels did have a difference. Take a look at strength, baseline level was 21. And if you look at the far right level on reduce it, it was 26. By the way, reduce it USA was significantly lower than that even. But look at strength 21, it only went up to 90. It basically went up to the baseline level of jealous. Look at reduce it, it went up to 144. So you can see right off the bat, we got a problem here with getting those EPA blood levels up within that first year of the patients. Now, this data just is out hot off the press this year. So the question is, is, is there any data that DHA may adversely affects the benefits of EPA? And there is, and you're gonna see it right now. So this is from the INSPIRE study. And basically we looked at over 900 patients randomly uh, selected under the registry. They had their first heart catheterization at Intermountain between 1994 to 2012. We looked at the, looked at the blood work and we quantitated the plasma levels of EPA and DHA. Then we looked at the 10-year MACE, Cox proportional hazard regression. And what is really cool, what we did was we looked at EPA, DHA only, and we looked at EPA and DHA adjusted for each other and adjusted and unadjusted for severe CAD, COPD, heart failure. Now look at this data. So look at the top in the blue, the EPA adjusted for DHA and comorbidities. Notice, notice as the quartiles go up, that EPA quartile, four to one, three to one, two to one, look at how we adjusted, notice how it goes up substantially. But look in the red on DHA. Look when DHA uh, unadjusted, no change. But look when you adjust it for the EPA and comorbidities, it increases. Notice quartile four versus one increased risk. It is taking away benefit from the EPA on this study. So now let's look at the EPA DHA ratio. And you can see, as you anticipated already, look at the EPA DHA uh, greater than one in the red. You can see your event-free interval was much greater than EPA DHA less than one. This is sort of a, it's a new way of looking at it. And you can see the 27% 10-year MACE for an EPA DHA greater than one versus a 37% 10-year risk of MACE. And the p-value is 0.0012. Our manuscript is currently under review. Now, this is just hot off the press from the last 48 hours. This is from the ESC Congress. This is the OMEMI trial. Remember, this was the this is the thousand elderly patients. You saw the data that came out earlier this year with, with 1.8 grams of EPA and DHA treated for two years. These are high-risk patients, elderly patients with a recent heart attack. But what they decided to do was look at the EPA uh, blood levels and the DHA blood levels. And you, it was the changes in the EPA blood level that were associated with the lower risk of, of, of MACE, and uh, you can see it's 0.06, actually it's 0.059, and the, also there was new onset increase in atrial fibrillation, but notice the increase in the, e, in the EPA, not the DHA, was associated with the event rate reduction. So in conclusions, um, from our study, uh, higher levels of EPA associated with reduction in MACE, higher levels of DHA when adjusted, 
increase the risk of MACE. EPA and DH are combined. The higher DPA blunts the effect of, of EPA. These findings may contribute. These are early signals, but these findings may contribute to discrepancies we've seen in the clinical trials. But these observations do raise further concern of the use of combination EPA and DHA for cardiovascular risk reduction. Um, thank you so very much. Um, um, and now uh, back to Bob. Well, John, that was a spectacular presentation. I get as excited as you do, and I think it's a definite move forward. This may be the next biggest thing that we've had in many years, and I, I think I really like the uh, stuff that Matt Mudoff did with the actual coronary CTs, uh, the stuff from Japan with the uh, actual optical coherence tomography. Those let you know it really works. So what I'm going to do now is take you to basic science. The first thing I'll show you is my fellow who walks out of the lab and a guy with 350 uh, triglycerides, and there's his blood. So if you look at the very top of it, it's orange. Uh, he has too much uh, actual triglycerides, kind of microns and everything else. And he goes, look at this blood. What do you think this is? Uh, this is our new disease. And this is something that we probably need to really pay attention to because it plugs up your vessels. It's just like 80 where grease in your car engine. The other thing I'd show you is that on actually this uh, angiogram, if you look, here's another angiogram of a young person with chest pain. This is the main artery. It's missing. See down here after we open it, this is another person that thinks his LDL was okay his triglycerides are high, he has diabetes, chest pain. You just cannot get, you need to get all these people under control with their metabolics. It's just not one thing. <laughs> I think this makes the point pretty clear. Conflicts of interest, I have pretty much the same as most folks. We all do grants, consulting, and lectures in many different companies. This is a neat slide. I, I actually like this. Uh, it looks like a table. This is a piece of cholesterol inside the cell. This can really aggravate and really irritate the uh, skin of the blood vessel, so to speak, and really bring in atherosclerosis. You can see macrophages attacking. It's trying to <laughs> get rid of it, but it's tough. And here's kind of an outline of my talk, LDL levels and oxidation. John certainly hit some of this already. The macrophages, we are your friends until you make them mad. Uh, and then oxidation effects, endothelial function I grew up with, just like John with nitric oxide. And then I'll close on some very nice things that Preston Mason has shown that uh, he allowed us to look at in the protein effects of these compounds. This is a nice uh, actual uh, paper. And I, I think the slide's big enough at the bottom, you can see the reference. You might want to get this. This is pretty slick. This shows you how the actual drug uh, IPE works. The lipase is affected. <laughs> you can see how it enters the endothelial enterocyte wall, comes inside, gets into the lymphatic system. Another new hot area of research for cardiologists. And again, in a highly purified state, you can get this compound. But you would have to take 10 pills of EPA over the counter to get equivalent of this. That's why uh, the high quality stuff costs money, <laughs> but it works. And that's why probably in the past we didn't get good actual numbers as far as our event reduction, but now we have a new high quality uh, chemical. This is actually, I guess I'd have to give most of this slide to Peter Libby. Uh, Peter showed this slide years ago. Here's the skin lining inside your blood vessel wall. Here's the endothelial cells. 
Here you can see the actual lipids come inside, become oxidized, get you some atherosclerosis. And again, the foam cells develop and you end up getting this cap that goes along your wall. Now, John showed you a really nice picture of the cap. You can see it with optical coherence tomography. As time goes on, you get into your 50s and then you rupture one of these plaques and you bleed inside. Although, be aware, you can rupture from inside out because the vasoviform feeds this area and the MMPs or matrix metalloproteinases, uh, also nicknamed from my house staff, Adolf's meat tenderizer, actually dissolves some of this cap. And then you crack it and you got problems. However, in diabetes, it's a little trickier. You can actually erode and these cells die when you have abnormal lipids because of the actual nuclear charge on some of the particles coming through the wall. So there's a lot of things going on. Now, what's going on down here is an angioscope. This is the fat inside of your artery as we come down a human. Over here, you can see where they ruptured the plaque and it's actually bleeding inside, just like you see up here. We don't want this. And what they actually showed when uh, uh, Matt Budoff and when John Nelson did his paper, they, which they published, they showed you that you could actually halt or slow this down and even regress in some folks. So it's really kind of neat to see the science actually back it up. Over here is using high quality fish oil, has many favorable effects, uh, certainly on the intermediate density lipoprotein and the entire LDL subclass, and probably beyond that, because it has the ability to reduce the amount of free radicals. If one is to take a look again at all the different types of LDL, intermediate density alike, here's this high quality fish oil down here. And you can see a significant benefit in reducing these particles that actually are in there. This is a great paper, but one that most of you don't read because you're not into the science. And two, most of us in private practice, we didn't have access to these journals. Fortunately, at the university, we do, and we do have a responsibility to show you a lot of this new stuff. Here's sunflower oil. If you like that one, I probably won't do as good as this one. It's going down. This is still going up. So again, pick your poison, but it does cost more for high quality fish oil. Over here is all the different particles that John talks about, and I do too. Here's the non-HDL. It really comes down. So no matter what you have, if you take and just look at the bad stuff, you have a better effect if you're actually giving the high quality fish oil. Now here's DHA and EPA potential clinical differences. And many of you ask, you know, why not just take DHA? Well, one is we have some data from these cholesterol rich domains that it promotes it. And it may even unstabilize the plaque. Whereas EPA is more like an antioxidant, although it has other properties, and it can reduce many of the things that actually cause heart disease that we know. Here's HSCRP, an inflammatory signal. Here's LPPLA2, and here's oxidized LDL. These significant changes can be seen in the actual proteinomic genes uh, and actually in the actual genes themselves. If you look at single nucleotides, they actually shift in a favorable direction. There are differences between these two drugs in humans. And I will show you at the very closing some interesting things that we have now. Over here shows the difference in actually taking a look at the, here's the gene ID. I'm going to look at all these genes. Now you say, Bob, I can't use that in clinical practice. That's ridiculous. Well, there's some things that you do recognize interferon you're familiar with. Here's the ones that recognize, recognize different parts of bacteria and viruses. 
We use that pattern recognition for inflammatory signals. Glycolysis is something that all of you are familiar with. Here's cyclic AMP. You've heard of that one. And you can see that many of these are highly significant. So if you just take a look, how much does it change with EPA? These are very significant changes. Look at those p-values. Even though you're not a basic science guy, you got to appreciate that there's something changing here that is quite important at a molecular level that certainly supports what John has presented very nicely in his elegant presentation for clinical side. Over here is looking at microarrays. Again, a very sophisticated technique. We're going to look at these different areas. Now, they all look kind of foreign to you, but some of them aren't so foreign. Actually, inflammatory signals, we measure this one over here. Now, let's see what these are. This is olive oil. This is EPA that John talked about, and here's DHA. You can see the best effect on inflammation sets right here. If you were to take a look at, again, HIFI, which is a cellular hypoxia signal, hypoxia generates a lot of inflammation, and you can see significant fall. If you were to take a look at STAT3 pathways, one we do a lot, you can see that again, it does fall. Certainly olive oil falls too, to be fair. But there is more things going the positive direction with EPA when you look at all these molecular signals than anything else that I have. Over here takes a look at potentially difference. Here's EPA and how it inserts into the membrane. And down here is DHA that works more in nervous, nervous system tissue than it does in the vascular bed. So there are differences when you really take a look at it. This is the translational effects of EPA. John, uh, again, John pointed out and showed you some different things over here, but the endothelial function is key. That carries a co-equal share risk factor for, uh, again, all kinds of atherosclerotic uh, risk factors. At the same time, reducing nitro, nitric oxide is bad. Here you can see it actually improves it. And here you can see a reduction in all the bad humors at a cellular wall that we have. Here's the unstable plaque and the benefits of using EPA on these areas. And all of my inflammatory signals, whichever one you want to measure, is actually going the right direction when you give EPA. So it does help you so you don't rupture a plaque as easily. Now this one you're going to like the most. So what if I was to take some mice and make them have very high LDLs, and then I'm going to stain them for fat? There it is, Sudan. Sudan 4, I call it Sudan Red, is staining the aorta. And just look, this has got the most. That's the one probably got the hospital cafeteria food. Here's a same animal, <laughs> but you see, he got EPA, a lot less. If you put them both together, it looks like it actually does pretty good. And then here's the actual signals that you can see in bar graphs. So you can see a marked benefit in these fish oils and how they work. Again, the combination in this animal study showed a benefit. This simply shows you the inflammatory signals are macrophages. Again, macrophages are important. And if you see, look around, you can see all this red. These macrophages are telling us that we have inflammation along this wall. If you give higher doses and put them together, you can see we reduced it even more. So in the future, we'll have to do more research. And again, you need basic science guys to crank this stuff out, but you need guys to look at the clinical to say, well, is this really real to humans? And that's what John did with his very elegant talk. Here's uh, showing you again the cholesterol crystals and the macrophages coming in to try to remove that. It's kind of difficult, actually. That needle in there really causes some problems. 
is it possible we could change some of this uh, and actually do a benefit? Look at this one. This takes a look at the potent antioxidant effects of EPA. There's nobody even close to this. It really brings it down. And you can see from the T-bar levels, which again is looking at antioxidant effect primarily, the nice benefits that you see. Here's lipid hydroxyperoxidase. And you can see these are shown to show a major benefit when you give the actual EPA itself. Again, backing up what John has shown you. This shows you the reduction in free radical progression in the lipid membrane. Uh, and it simply shows you a diagram how this lipid peroxidation is affected and benefited by the use of EPA in the free radical production. Again, many of these slides come from the Harvard group and are very helpful for teaching and understanding how this works. This takes a look actually at the actual levels again of T-bars. And remember T-bars is again showing you the tremendous power of antioxidants. Here is the highest, uh, the lowest quartile versus the highest quartile of actually having uh, T-bars. If you get more oxidative stress, look at these levels. That's called a major vascular event stroke or MI. Here's angina. This is a nice study the PREVENT trial. So it's showing you that these do make a difference from the basic science translational biology into the stuff that John works on with the clinical side. Here is the actual angina, cabbages, a piece. All of them are benefited with this EPA as it decreases T-bars. So closing comments in my last couple of minutes. If you take a look at this, this is from Preston Mason. And he, what he has done, he has taken a look at the proteins that modulate EPA and DHA. And if you were to compare the two, these color diagrams let us know what is happening to the upregulation and downregulation of different proteins with different types of drugs. And you can see here again, the EPA and the IL-6 versus IL-6 alone, clearly different. Here's DHA. Boy, that's certainly different colors than I see for EPA. So they're doing different things. And I think you can see that in private practice, when you're looking at clinical trials, you need to have a variation that shows clinical benefit. You have that with the new drug that we have today. This shows you another example of, again, differential changes in the expression of these detoxification and neutrophil degranulation proteins. Again, you can see that here's one that is controlled. Here's one with EPA. Boy, that's different. And over here is DHA. They're not the same drugs. So if you think that you're getting the same drug by T and DHA, you're not. And I think, again, it costs a little more for a more expensive drug, but it does seem to give you a lot more benefit in many of these areas. This is, I think, my most interesting slide. All of the people I work with, the house staff, think that they can go to the supplement store and they can actually do a pretty good job of taking different kinds of free omega. You really can't. The expensive stuff is the reason it's expensive. It's hard to maintain a nice air. Here is the saturated fat that's in many of the dietary supplements. And there's just nothing beats that picture. I, I don't remember if John gave me that or one of the folks, but I think this tells you, you can't get the same, the, the drug's expensive because it's hard to make, but at the same time, you get certainly a great benefit. So sort of in closing in the last couple of minutes, LDL is important, the oxidation is important. Where EPA sets in the membrane to stabilize is important. It has shown us that it has ability to shut down a lot of the inflammatory signals and macrophage activation that we didn't have with other compounds. 
Certainly it's an antioxidant, as we saw with T-bars. John's shown you endothelial function in nitric oxide. They're both better. And the protein effects at the very closing, again, thanks to Preston Mason, tells us in humans, this, these are different compounds. And the one you want is the EPA. It does cost more, but you're getting more for your money. Now, let me show you my most recent case. Uh, this is just a few days earlier. Uh, this is a guy that we kept in the cath lab. Here's all of these numbers. Here's his triglycerides. LDL looks pretty good. So we do an intervention, and they worked on this area up here, did fine. This vessel right here, if you look at it, it looks fine. Do you know, 72 hours later, when I go on call, they call me and say, hey, he's got chest pain. And I go down there and look, and he has now increased this area of atherosclerosis, probably ruptured a plaque here. The guy needs to have better control of his, all of his metabolics. They just didn't do it because everybody seems to think a stent's going to save the day. It won't. I ended up stenting this, but remember, that's only that little bitty area there, about probably 12 millimeters. You know, he'll be back. He's got lots of places for me to work. And again, it uh, tells you that we really do need to pay attention to all of the actual metabolic risk factors. Let me turn it back uh, to our uh, moderators, and we'll start with the case study potentially here. Thank you an outstanding presentation, Bob. It's just amazing at the effects of EPA on the uh, anti-inflammatory aspects. And uh, it's, it's just amazing how complex as far as the different aspects go. So now let's shift to the real world clinical imperatives on reducing atherosclerotic events. And it's time to get back in the trenches the first calculation uh, that you need to make is to estimate the absolute 10-year atherosclerotic risk using the risk calculator. Now, I have these in every room, and, and as I'll show you in a minute, it's very important uh, that, that we utilize this. And what I want to also emphasize, in our society, it's very important that we use risk-enhancing factors uh, and also, if, if, there's any, if there's any certainty exists, uncertainty, we also need, as you see at the bottom here, to get a coronary artery calcium score. I can't overemphasize this. This is extremely important as a simple clinical tool to help stratify our patients. It's an, and I'll tell you, it's an incredibly affordable, humbling test, too. You're going to be absolutely surprised sometimes when you find out what your calcium score comes back. Um, on your patients. So you can see this comes in really important in our borderline and intermediate risk patients. So the, we want to advocate lifelong lifestyle changes. Uh, we want to especially uh, emphasizing um, eating fruits, vegetables, increasing our fiber, decreasing our sugar, uh, refined carbohydrates, we want to go with the whole grain, and especially we want to decrease our sodium intake. Um, and, and really, the best data, the best evidence for reduction of myocardial infarction is, is with the Mediterranean diet. Um, exercise is so important, and we're so, so lacking overall in it in our society, especially in this pandemic. 
and especially out west where we are, um, you know, our air pollution is terrible. We have stifling heat. Um, and, and one of the important things you can tell your patients when they start an exercise program is the first lipid parameter that decreases significantly changes, you guessed it, is the triglycerides. So this is, this is important to tell them. It's not going to be the LDL that changes first. It's not going to be the HDL. It's going to be the triglycerides. And you're going you're gonna to need all the help you can get, as we know with many of our patients, reducing the carbs, reducing the alcohol, reducing the beer, reduce, getting them to walk more. And we're still going to need pharmacologic help for a lot of these patients. So the best evidence for walking is 30 minutes a day, five days a week. Now, here is the ACC risk calculator um, estimates the 10-year hard risk. It's intended to provide our, our, our discussion and breast strategies to reduce risk. Greater than 7.5 identifies statin eligibility. It's not a mandatory prescription, but yeah, it identifies eligibility. But again, when you've got that intermediate risk, you really need to look at risk enhancing factors. This patient may be at higher risk than you think. So as you see, use the primary prevention guideline algorithms to guide management, but pay especially close attention to the, to the risk enhancing factors. Take a look at these factors, very common. Family history, mature cardiovascular disease. Um, men age 55 years or less, women age 65 uh, uh, years. Um, you're basically adding 10 years to the age of a risk for the family history. Um, primary hypercholesterolemia, that's an LDL of 190. Metabolic syndrome, as we know, chronic kidney disease, chronic inflammatory conditions, history of premature menopause or pregnancy associated conditions such as preeclampsia, high risk, ethnicity, South Asians, really important. It's a very, very high risk subgroup. Uh, high risk levels of lipids. And one of the most important things you should remember right off the bat is triglycerides. You heard me mention it earlier. Persistently elevated trigs. Just remember, 175. If they're 175 and they've been that way, that's a risk enhancing factor. And that may push you into adding a statin on patients. So the risk enhancing has to not just for treating triglycerides, but also go back to your risk calculator and make sure that you, they are on a statin if they should be. Uh, persistent, if measured, high sensitivity CRP, and you might want to write that down, over two for that, lipoprotein A50, ApoB 130, um, and, and I already mentioned the trigs, and a, an ABI less than 0.9. So as I mentioned, calcium score to guide statin therapy. And basically, it's easy. These are some of the important things to know. A score of 199, 1 to 99 favors statin therapy. Remember, a score of 1 means you have plaque. It's mild plaque. Your risk is still very low, but you, have, you now have atherosclerosis. Your score should be 0. And don't forget, you can be very young, be 0, if your trig's been elevated especially, and you got it. Those remnant lipoproteins, those gooey things in your plaque, they may not have calcified yet. So you may have calcium and still not have calcium and be high risk. And that's one of the types of patients to think about. So the coronary artery calcium score is very important. It's affordable. 
And as I told you, it will be humbling if you're not already using it. So what is high risk atherosclerotic cardiac disease? Well, uh, high risk is major events, uh, ACS, MI, stroke, high risk conditions. And, and then we have very high risk. And very high risk is two of the major atherosclerotic events or one plus two of the high risk conditions. That's the definition of very high risk. Now remember, diabetes is even more aggressive. So the statin treatment includes those with a 10-year risk of 20%. High-intensity statin should be added to lifestyle therapy, period. In patients, it, diabetics without atherosclerotic heart disease, uh, but with multiple risk factors, it's reasonable to consider high-intensity. So it's very important to look at, at, at the diabetics, as you've, as you've heard Bob talk, how important all this is. So take a look at the U.S. prevalence of TRIGS over 150. You've already heard me tell you that the reducing criteria, it exists in 8.5 million Americans. But look at triglycerides, just elevated TRIGS, period, is 55 million Americans. And look at statin-treated uh, patients and non-statin-treated patients. And we, whether they're statin-treated or treated, we still are in the millions of, of patients. So this is really, really prevalent. It needs to be aggressively treated. So you can see on the guidelines, um, atherosclerotic disease, not at very high risk. You can age less than 75. Um, High-intensity statin goals to get the LDL down. Um, and you can see if they're not on maximal statin therapy and LDL less than 70, consider adding uh, uh, zetamide may be an option. So now let's take a look at very high risk patients, high intensity on maximal statin. If again, there's the cutoff of 70. If, if on maximal therapy, um, again, azetamide you can add. We also now have bempedoic acid it's not on the slide, another drug that you can add. Um, and also we can consider PCSK9. Now let's talk about the update on prescription IPE versus, uh, IP versus EPA and DHA versus dietary supplement. So the new guideline recommendations uh, for icosapenethyl, take a look at all the various guidelines and you will see the guidelines have TRIGS of 135 to 499. Now remember, the FDA indication is 150, but the guidelines you'll notice include, uh, have are down to 135 on most professional organizations. So in the ACC guidelines in diabetics older than 40 with no atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, um, and and, and fasting trigs greater than equal 150 or non-fasting greater than 175. That's, again, we talked about, that's an enhancing risk factor. Um, you can see um, uh, if it's persistent, um, despite ruling out secondary issues, getting their glucose under control, diet, statin therapy, obviously we are now able to use icosapentethyl uh, prescription IPE. Now, atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease and TRIGS that are elevated more than 150 in fasting, non-fasting 175 to 500. As you can see, if the persistently elevated, if the LDL is less than 70, uh, bingo. 
uh, you can train them. But notice when you're all said and done, it doesn't matter whether the LDL is greater than 100 or 71, uh, 99, if they have persistent, all arrows end up ending in icosapentethyl if necessary. So this is, this is important for you to know. Um, what are the warnings regarding uh, prescription IPE? Atrial fibrillation and flutter uh, is, is associated with increased risk. The, inc the incidence of atrial fibrillation flutter was greater in patients with history of atrial fibrillation or flutter. But I do want to put this in perspective. That our biggest concern, obviously, is stroke. And remember, icosapenethyl reduces stroke. Uh, the potential for allergic reactions in patient with fifth allergy. Um, IPE contains icosapen, uh, includes the ethyl esters of omega-3 fatty acid, EPA, obtained from oil of fish. It's not known whether patients with allergies to fish or shellfish are at increased risk of an allergic reaction. Bleeding, IPE is associated with increased risk of bleeding. The incidence of bleeding was greater in patients with concomitant antithrombotic medications such as aspirin, clopidogrel, or warfarin. Now, on the ICER base, bottom line is icosapentethyl is cost-effective. I actually uh, published a paper uh, before Reduce It even came out and made some basic assumptions and showed that it would be cost-effective. And the irony is when the study came out, it was even, the results were even better than my estimations and, and still showed it and showed it to be obviously cost-effective. You've already seen uh, Bob's slide about the, there's possible presence in some of the supplements of, 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 of fatty, of saturated fatty acids, which obviously is at solid at room temperature. Um, the, the, on, on some of the supplements, the omega-3 content can be overstated and the oxidation content can be high. And this has been studied in multiple uh, studies. And this was a study on, on leading US fish oil supplements, by the way. Achieving the recommended dose is obviously a problem when you don't have high dose EPA, because remember, it comes down to the EPA blood level. And as you can see with icosapenethyl prescription EPA, all we need are four gel caps and we can get a good EPA blood level. As we get into the, some of the supplements, your, your, your EPA percentage is going down and down, especially when you get to some of the krill oil supplements. It's, you're going to have to take many, many gel caps to get 4,000, uh, to get 3.84 milligrams of EPA, of, of grams EPA per day. Thank you. Well, now let's look into uh, the effects of icosapenethyl on, on a real case. Um, here's a 56-year-old male with sudden cardiac death. Uh, this patient had no significant past medical history. You can see his LDL is 176, triglycerides 261, family history of premature cardiovascular disease. Okay. Uh, the patient doesn't have hypertension. And while attending a medical conference, he felt sort of funny and then went into a cardiac arrest. Fortunately, he was promptly resuscitated by physicians in the area, taken to the cath lab where the Widowmaker, the proximal LAD lesion was stented. Notice his fasting glucose is 102, he's pre-diabetic. Notice the low HDL cholesterol, 
and notice the typical low EPA blood level that we see here in the United States. But I want to point out before you see these the rest of the slides, just think if if using enhanced risk factors, look at all the, the different factors here. Family history, low HDL, persistently elevated triglycerides. This this patient has a boatload of 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 enhancing factors. And just think if you would have had a coronary artery calcium score, or maybe just being stratified um, with a stress test. So what happened next? So as you see, he was treated for his ST segment elevation MI with guideline-directed medical therapy. He was placed on 80 milligrams of atorvastatin. And notice his LDL went down nicely to 81. And he astutely, they added his edia. It lowered it further down to 64. And notice the triglycerides were decreased then to 190. So now what would you do next? Uh, just see him back in five months? Add a PCSK9 and maybe see him back in two months. Add a fibrate and a PKS, PCSK9 inhibitor, see him back in two months. Or give him a generic EPA and DHA combination and follow up in two months. Or give him prescription icosapenethyl and see him back after blood work in two months. Well, that's what was done. And here's his six-week blood work. Look at his LDL cholesterol, 63, HDL about 36, triglycerides decreased to 152. And look at that plasma EPA blood level at 162. And you can see on the right his initial blood work. So you can share with them all these exciting things that you have done, increasing that EPA blood level. And on the HDL, you can explain to them, you're making it more functional. Um, and you can explain to them, you've got the LDL now down below 70. You've got your triglycerides almost perfect. They're gonna be, they're probably gonna even go with lower as he starts getting more involved with exercise. So, I, my patients love it when I share with them all of these results. I show them their blood work. I show them their changes. And I show them all the boxes, how they go from red to green. It's very exciting. And I, and I want to thank everybody for inviting me here to share all this with you. Thank you. Well, John, thank you very much for a very elegant talk. Uh, and the clinical case is spectacular. It shows that it really is beneficial to add some of these new therapies to control metabolic abnormalities. Uh, I think uh, John and I certainly thank all the audience today. And now what we'll move on to is a discussion section. Thank you. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Medtelligence. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash medtelligence. Thank you for listening.